Welcome to Rationalish, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the effervescent Eddie Matthews. I hate that word. I don't know <laughs> if you knew that I hated that word, but I hate that word. Because <laughs> um, it's so spot on, is that why? Yeah. Um, is that the first word you put on your online dating profile? Which one? Effervescent. No, which profile? <laughs> True. Uh, my coffee and bagel, uh, grinder, or grinder. sorry, I meant my coffee I meant and grinder. bagel, or my hinge, or my bumble. <laughs> Which one, dude? How do you find time to do the pod with like so many dates you have all the time? It's difficult. It's, it's impressive. Well, that's yeah. hence the three week break we've been on this hiatus. True. Sorry, fans, but uh, <laughs> thanks for sticking with us. What are we? What are what are, uh, what are we going to be talking about today, Morgan? Well, first I, I want to say we're making up for the three week hiatus, which, you know, unsuspiciously coincided with finals finals weeks here, um, with a couple episodes right before the end of the year. That's right. And I just want to give a call out before we get into this episode. If you're our loyal rationalishers, that rational listeners, that we are hoping to do start a an annual trend here to go after one controversial topic at Christmas time, controversial Christmas episode. And so we're, we're putting a call out to, to topics out there that people think we have been avoiding or something you just want to hear about that may not be a polite dinner conversation around family time that you can escape to, to the rationalish hole with us uh so yeah give us a shout out and let us know what you what you're thinking oh this reminds me if you uh i'm gonna do the like annoying podcast uh host thing right now of asking <laughs> if you just go and take two seconds to just give us the full five star rating on i guess it's itunes I don't know. Wherever I don't you think get you're your allowed podcast. to ask for the five stars. I think you're supposed to just say, like, rate us on iTunes, and then they get to decide how many stars. <laughs> but I think it's fair to say, don't go on there unless you're going to give us five stars. No, <laughs> I think it's fair to ask for five stars. <laughs> I think it's fair to ask for five stars because we're that good. Can we tell them that it's out of ten? And then we'll be like, we only want five. Right. Just do the five. The, don't worry about just the go. On, just go on our little page, scroll down to ratings and reviews, Give us a 5.0 out of 5 because <laughs> what, you, what you're going to take this seriously and give us what we really deserve, which is probably like a 3.4? <laughs> I think that's probably pretty accurate, actually. I think we're above 3. We're, 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 we would be fresh in Rotten Tomatoes. We, have we wouldn't one, be certified fresh. We do have one honest listener who gave us a 3 star. <laughs> yeah, who, who had the... like? the time I think to go on <laughs> iTunes and then not give us a zero, but like give us a three. Is, I, I appreciate that. I, I enjoyed that a lot. But uh, yeah, well, what are we talking about today, Eddie? Let's get into it. I know our listeners are just ravenous for more rationalist content. Yeah, so. we're talking about a New Yorker article that Brandon Canan, shout out to Brandon, uh, sent me on Twitter um, because he knows I study borders. And uh, yeah, he just sent it over and I was like, oh, we'll do a, we'll do a pod on this. And he's like, cool, looking forward to listening to it. He's also a listener as well. 
Um, there we go. And uh, just want to give a shout out to Alex Kasi, who I found out was a, was a listener yesterday as well. Yeah, so if you happen to try to do some oh, content. Oh, I have a third shout out, actually. I ran into Riley oh, Hubble uh, over Thanksgiving on my way up, and I ran into her in a Ventura in and out and she listens to the pod, so shout out to Riley. There you go. We're, we're becoming like stereotypical podcasters who spend the first five minutes of the episode not talking about anything. <laughs> 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 yeah i love it i love it so anyways um what are borders for by can you give us uh the art the author's name do you want to do the honors i can because it's my favorite author's name that we've done so far and so he has a hyphenated last name which i can only assume was because he didn't want to lose the first portion of the hyphenated last name which would have been a crime. His name is Joshua Jelly Shapiro. <laughs> and so if you're out there, J. Jelly Shapiro, we appreciate your article and uh, found it very, very enlightening. Hey, and we're happy to talk about it today. We're not going to talk about impeachment on this pod, at least not right now. Mm. But can I share one really quick impeachment highlight? <laughs> yes. Um, I saw a little snippet of this representative from Georgia... Um, who, you know, talked for a couple minutes during the um, impeachment hearing. And his name is Barry Loudermilk. And I just loved that name. Do you think that's why he got elected? Probably. And then he said some pretty wild stuff about... <laughs> I'm gonna about to do a Barry, Barry Loudermilk impression. I have a feeling that you will not be called out on your very loud impression, so you're good to go. Um, where he's like, even when Jesus was put in front of Pontius Pilate, he got a better hearing than these Democrats are giving President Trump. It was pretty great. <laughs> nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. Yeah. Just Trump and Jesus, man. So anyways, <laughs> so there's our insightful commentary on impeachment. We can, yeah. if you would like to hear more about that, you can vote for that for our controversial episode. Um, yeah, exactly. Otherwise we're going to dig into this border one for today. Um, so yeah, what struck you about this, uh, article, what borders are for? Yeah. I mean, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was kind of a well crafted way of tying together internal border security and the actual kind of structuring of external borders. Um, I think when we think of border control in the U.S. right now, it has a lot to do with the wall and kind of these Barbican-type structures that are physical barriers to entry at actual national boundaries. Um, and there's a lot more that goes into borders than that, and borders all over the world have such different they conjure such different images for locals and governments. Uh, I think it, it was an interesting way of tying that all together while looking to the future of border control. How about yourself? Um, <clears throat> I think I just liked the kind of um, global and historical lens that it looked at borders through. Um, one little snippet that I enjoyed was it was talking about how... <sighs> Essentially, like, it's it's a fairly recent kind of post-enlightenment phenomena for there to be city-states and for those city-states to be demarcated by borders in that. And then even more recent is it 
uh, for the, or I guess I should say really like nation states, for nation states to be able to have as much information on who is coming in and out of their territory as we do now. Like this is very much a modern phenomena. Um, so the fact that it was talking about, you know, these there's these certain kind of um, flashpoints in the history of borders, one of which was, um, well, let's quote this little uh, part of the article, near the end of the First World War, Woodrow Wilson proposed the international community might prevent such horrors if it follows his 14 points, which became central to the Paris Peace Conference. Key among them was the principle that some of the globe's borders be redrawn along clearly recognizable lines of nationality. Because it was basically talking about how the First World War, in some respects, I mean, it was started by a lot of things, but it was started by, like, Bosnia wanting, you know, their own independence. And so this kind of desire for there to be more clarity when it comes to, as these empires were kind of uh, becoming, I guess, less like empires, as it was, the world was becoming more... um, divided into smaller states that brought with it having to more clearly define what the borders were because there weren't these huge just Austro-Hungarian empires that dominated just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of you know square mileage absolutely and it's it's no coincidence that I mean borders were sort of a compromise to limit damage done by war in the first place right that's yeah. what the, the Westphalian contract and Westphalian sovereignty is all about, is after the Thirty Years' War, limiting the amount of violence that would be wrought in the future, fighting over kind of controversial middle land. Um, so if you can just agree with your neighbor, like, look, don't cross this line, then there's no reason to, to have a war unless somebody does infringe on that boundary. Um, and that is very, very recent in human history and even modern history, um, and and even more so in other parts of the world, places like Africa, which are really cut up national with national borders in in the twentieth century, and still have many spaces where borders are basically non-existent. Um, yeah, I mean it is fascinating. I thought it was I think, really interesting too yeah. was that how it was talking about, um, you know, for most of the twentieth century, uh, it made the point that a lot of what were kind of like hard boundaries or hard borders were militarized for actually military reasons, giving, you know, the um, the demilitarization zone, crossing the Korean yeah. Peninsula, separating North and South mm-hmm. Korea, or, um, you know, these kind of like Cold War Iron Curtain spots like Kashmir that actually had this buffer zone and actually were fortified because there was like a military threat or there was you know a war that just finished or threatening you know impending war just beginning and then the author makes cases like now it's just common for there to be like the wall that israel has uh with palestine or the you know this trend across four different presidential administrations u.s presidential administrations of more and more and more militarization on our southern border even though we're not at war with mexico Absolutely. I think it's it's really interesting. We I think we've talked about this idea a few times on on the pod about just the underlying lack of space on earth 
the the amount of advanced technology has just really magnified how little left of Earth is non-explored or at least just not contentious. Um, there really aren't, I mean, even a hundred years ago, there were places on the Earth where nobody really had any claims to them. And now every inch of every continent has been claimed by a national party. And those things are, you know, basically cherished and widely seen as a part of a national entity. And that change is only going to continue to have an impact on, you know, the advancement of, of humanity as technology advances and security advances and facial recognition and all these technologies we'll talk about grow. And there really isn't any space to expand into like there was even 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I think that the way, the trend of migration that you're talking about and the world, you know, us not having any more frontiers in the sense of like, we have mapped every part seemingly of like the known terrain of earth. Right. Yeah. And yet I think the trend over the last, I don't know, 50 years or however long we felt like now we know where everywhere where everywhere in the world we've investigated every Indonesian island and such. Um, I feel like the trend has been now we're just seeing the desirable places or what are des deemed the desirable places in the world being heavily impacted and the less desirable places just being vacated. I'm looking at I mean, you, I Wyoming. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see a lot of historians say that the reason Europe kind of became engulfed in war in the 20th century is because of the lack of space. Um, and the U.S. has never had that problem until recently when continued internal migration to urban areas on the coasts has seen the rate of migration into these places rapidly outpace the amount of construction on housing, especially affordable housing. Um, and this is something new just in, within the United States. And we see this all over the world. I mean, most migration is still either within a country or within a continent. Um, we mostly talk about transnational migration, but internal migration has seen just as rapid increases, if not more so in many places. Um, and these changes are having a drastic impact on urban rural landscapes uh, rates of like industrialization um, with fascinating interactions with technologies and a switches over to automation just when there are more increases to urbanization and more urban individuals. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. What do you think are the takeaways from this? Is there anything that you think is going to be central? How do you feel about migration as a central feature of like the 21st century. Do you think migration is going to be seen as one of the primary instigators or do you think it's more a knock-on effect of these other things like climate change and war and unequal capitalism and growth? I just think there's a, uh, I think there's a deeply, um, deeply inbuilt desire within the human condition to migrate or to move. Yeah. And that sounds, I don't know. I think the empirical evidence is that we've migrated for the entirety of the human race. 
And I guess the experiential evidence is that I am doing a PhD in the UK. <laughs> and you did too, you know? Like, this idea of... This idea that if we fortify... If we in the rich countries fortify our borders strong enough or just make the bureaucracy hellish enough that we will stifle the human, like, desire for migration, that to me... Or with Brexit, right? Like, if we disband the European Union um, and, you know, uh, focus on building up our own... I don't, I don't know what the main rationale, I guess, for for somebody that, that kind of take back control, but I guess it's this kind of nativist, like, we need to focus back on building a better Britain. Or just this isolationist, like, we have what we need here. We don't need so much foreign meddling in uh, our internal affairs it that to me just seems like a losing game that seems like a current you know era it's, it's very much a reaction to this kind of all of the anxiety that globalization has made and i just think that it's it is an era and it'll probably be an era at that last 25 years and then we're going to look back at that and be like oh that was that was an interesting in the same way that Postmodernism is a reaction to modernism. I think this era of like nativist anxiety is an overreaction to the globalization that came before it, and that whatever next era is going to look back on this and be like, "Oh, that was that was like an interesting kind of uh, difficult season to weather," you know. So what I'm hearing is that you are a fan of open borders and you support mass immigration all around i can't tell if that's a bit was that a bit <laughs> yeah okay because what well, maybe we should talk about that real quick um so so if you were in charge right. you would basically go to the desert in arizona and knock down the wall and take over mexico for the U.S. could just blur the lines at the border. <laughs> if I were in charge, change. I'd be like, all right, you want to live in this country? Great. You can work in California, but as soon as the agriculture season's done, you have to move to Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> the idea. That's, I think that's that's cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah. I think that's even worse than the current policies. Yeah. Uh, Sorry for our Wyoming. Um, no, we should address this kind of... So that's kind of a charge that gets leveled on Democrats a lot. And maybe we deserve it right now. Maybe we deserve that, like, oh, so you're for open borders? Well, to be fair, there are people... I mean, they're the ones that are amplified on Twitter and everything else that do actually support open right. borders. And there's, you know, maybe we can get into maybe some of the, like, macroeconomic theory behind open borders and how it's you know, better for economies and whatnot. I don't know if it's necessary. Is yeah. it? No. But we can talk about it briefly. Anyways, um, so if you're a Republican person watching the Democratic debates, it's not um, terribly clear whether all of these um, candidates wanting to be the president of your country aren't fully for open borders. And so I think if you're just like the average Republican voter and you're like, I don't know, man, all these Democrats like can't even say the word uh, 
immigration control, you know, or like they can't even touch the topic of how do we monitor immigration to make sure. And so I have some sympathy certainly for that. Um, I guess that charge or that criticism, but I think that if you talk to any kind of, uh, mainstream like moderate democrat person or like moderate to progressive you're not going to find that they support fully open borders what you'll probably find well i'll just speak for myself what i think is that we need to monitor and like control immigration at the same time that we're that we have to uphold un international human rights and so like, I think we're sophisticated enough as a country to be able to do both. But our current administration and the three administrations before that all seem to think that we are not capable of doing both. So you're basically a commie. That's what, yeah. that's what I'm hearing. No, it, <laughs> it kind of annoys me to no end how Samantha Power, uh, who was Obama's uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Mm-hmm. will tweet, like, about, you know, these cruel uh, conditions in the detention cells and separating families. When I'm like, dude, sorry, but any Obama official that's getting on their high horse about immigration right now, like, just don't shut up, you know? <laughs> like, they're, the Obama administration uh, was as guilty as the Trump administration on so many of these fronts. Well, they use their high horses to round up illegals in <laughs> right. <back to> Mexico. <laughs> I mean, obviously Trump's administration kind of going from prevention through deterrence, um, which was already a very heavy handed kind of anti-immigration stance as an administration to zero tolerance, you know, that led to family separations and that's led to several kids dying in, Customs and Border Protection's uh, hands at this point. I think it's seven, which didn't occur um, in administrations before that, to my knowledge. So, like, there I mean, is it's an certainly amplification. Gotten worse, right? What? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. With you. I mean, it's certainly gotten worse. It's gotten it's worse. Been it's been since... amplified, but it's been just it's on this. It's been on this trajectory for you know since of Clinton. Course. Since I would say since yeah since, since the Bracero program ended since the NAFTA agreement was first signed in ninety four. Probably. Yeah. You would know more about that than, than me, but it's it's the trajectory that it's been on, it certainly hasn't been an exponential increase. It's been yeah. It's been amplified, absolutely. But so it, I, it was on this path. I think that's important for, you know, like Democrats to acknowledge and for people to know. Um and I think that once we get into like past the primary, we'll start to see whatever candidate that we get talk about a more kind of like common sense approach to immigration control and you'll start to hear those uh, kind of a, a more critical thinking response to it other than this just like 100% pro-immigrant response. That Wait, you're... are you saying that the primary might be not uh, a perfect representation of the political views <laughs> yeah. of the Democratic candidate? Yeah, I know it's hard to believe, <laughs> but there's yeah, certain... How dare you? Oh man, I heard this incredible quote from... Um, I think it was from Mario Cuomo, who I believe is the father of uh, Chris 
Cuomo, the CNN correspondent, and um, okay. I give it a name six out of ten. It's nowhere near Jelly Shapiro. Yeah, and Steven. the other, the brother, his brother Cuomo, who's the governor of New York. Anyways, um, I heard this quote on the Political Junkie about he said um, he said candidates campaign in poetry, but they govern in prose. And I thought that was such a perfect encapsulation of, like, campaigning versus governing. Yeah. Um, well, this is, I mean, we can get into this. I think we talked about this before. The One of the, I actually want to talk about how democracy plays a role in current migration patterns yeah, in a second. Yeah. But the idea that the way that, especially the American primaries are set up, you literally have to promise the moon. Right. And people are inevitably going to be disappointed. Uh, and you, and you're, you're inevitably going to be made out to be a liar yeah. because every exactly, you political candidate, can't... every single political candidate lies. Yeah. <laughs> because well, you have to even, manipulate. I mean, not even, not even just straight lies. I don't think it's, it's I don't even think about it's like, I don't think it's, yeah, sorry. It's, it's who's going to vote for. Yeah. It's, it's promises, you know, you can't keep that, you know, you have to make. So if you call well, that, that a lie, that's up to you. On. What? If it's the problem is when people say that a compromise is a betrayal of your promise, right? Because you were never going to be able to pass that promise in the first place. You right. were going to have to compromise. You right. promise high and you compromise, but what's happened is people see that compromise nowadays as a capitulation, right. To the other side, and so right. everyone is inevitably going to be disappointed and disillusioned with the entire system. I think that's probably, and you know. This will be the last thing, and then we and then we can get back to talking about borders. But I think that's what, if I was gonna, and this is man, this is a hard thing for me to do. I want to brace everybody. I'm about to make the most charitable stance I could possibly make towards Mitch McConnell right now. He doesn't look that much like a turtle. <laughs> no, I tweeted the other day how his second chin is mesmerizing, and it is. Okay, fair but, enough. But um, no, the most charitable stance I could say to Mitch McConnell is that all of this, you know, coercion with the White House and all of this, like, um, you know, him being the Grim Reaper of every single, even bipartisan piece of legislation that comes across his desk, and all of this obstinance um, and not allowing there to be, like, a fair trial in the Senate, he'd be like, look, like, this is the role of um, the... Well, I would say the opposition party, but he's not. He 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 plays the majority like he's in the opposition. But he's like, yeah. hey, this is the role that I have to fulfill. And it means mm. it pushes our democracy to a better place because I know Nancy Pelosi and all of her people will push equal and oppositely in the opposite direction. And so we'll come to whatever is some sort of decent middle ground that we wouldn't otherwise come to if I wasn't as intransigent as I am. So you should be thanking me. That's probably what he would, you know. I don't even know if he would say that. I don't know if he needs to, like these days, it's not even rationalizing his choice. He's just being obstinate for obstinacy's sake, you know? Well, that's why I think he would justify being obstinate for obstinacy's sake. Do you think how much more, so we can get back to the article in a second, how much more, like, vitriol would he receive if he looked like Dick Cheney? If he just looked like more of a stereotypical villain? I think he gets away with a lot just just because he's so like, there's no he just way looks, he can be competent. He, he's not a mastermind. He looks like he was made in a bureaucratic test tube, like a test tube <laughs> to produce bureaucrats. He yeah. 
Like um, if you shaved his head and gave him like a jolly. Oh, tattoo, this is a really. Like, that's a really good. If he looked like Michael Avenatti, and yeah. and said and did all the same stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point. He probably. I think he would like be straight out of Austin Powers. Like yeah. he'd be an evil villain from Austin yeah. Powers in that case. But other he gets away with a lot because he looks like a turtle. And yeah, and he sounds like one. Even in stories, turtles aren't the bad guys. Yeah, true. He's got it made. He probably looked. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sorry, we're getting a bit off track. Um, so, yeah, I think basically it's this um, this idea. This, I mean, speaking of like bureaucracy and bureaucrats, is this idea that um, the article brings up of you know, quoting it here, dozens if not hundreds of states around the world turned uh, questions of customs and immigration enforcement once left to anonymous bureaucrats into pressing matters of national defense. So that's where you get like populists seeing. Um, immigration, being able to be conflated with anti-terrorism and being able to be the, like, I'm, uh, vote for me is a vote for security and protecting your kids candidate, you know? And so that's been a huge, like, boost, I think, to the Boris Johnson and Donald Trumps of the world because, um, they're able to, 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 to take immigration out of, like, an economic context and put it in a national security context and, like, score easy political victories, you know? How much of this do you think is self-perpetuating by the creation of immigration as a central political issue? So what I mean by this this is what I was talking about earlier with the bringing in of democracy. So democracy in a non-liberal sense, so, like, the Republican sense of majority rule is about having 51% of the population on your side, right? Right. And you have the Electoral College, maybe less than that, but we can talk about that some other time. Yeah. The in, in past flows of immigration to the United States, let's say Cubans in you know, the 1980s or whatever, who the immigrants were going to vote for was not always a singular party. Right. The religious attachments, ethnic attachments, those sorts of things meant that immigrants could be Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative of roughly equal measure. Right. It fluctuated from time to time. But because of the politicization of immigration, it can you can generally say that most of the immigrants that come over to the US, if they were a given citizenship, would vote democratic right. in the current environment. Right. Which just means that there's even more incentive for Republicans to keep out immigrants, right? Right. And to enforce like ID laws and voter restrictions and those sorts of things. Well, and also, I mean, this goes into voter suppression of black populations. Absolutely. So not that, I mean, the black uh, African-Americans are obviously U.S. citizens already, but like the idea of, um, the idea of making sure that you're reelected, not, based on having your platform appeal to enough coalitions, but doubling down on a core coalition and satisfying them and then just suppressing other coalitions just enough to get, you know, yeah. And, or Absolutely. I mean, or this, is, this is what lost in the... Just as much as the, the Democrats lost in, in 2016, what also was defeated was the reformist Republican movement, right? Right. The, idea the 2012 autopsy. Yeah, they could court the conservative minorities in the South, particularly, to vote Republican in the future. 
and that that was going to be the way of battling back against this demographic shifts demographic shifts that has pretty much completely disappeared and there's really even though a lot of minorities are actually very conservative compared to um, white populations there's really no reason for minorities to vote Republican right. in a lot of places well, that's, because of the policies they've adopted. That's the irony is that like the Republicans are squandering so many potential votes and potentially like generations of voters because they're allowing so much like racism and uh, just like vitriolic anti-minority um, talk right now because Absolutely. basically I mean, like I think yeah. th- like there's certain definitely like uh highly educated Muslim populations and uh, and very, like, religious Muslim populations and also, um, like, Latino populations. And also, like, in the black community, there's a lot of kind of conservatism. There's much more... I think there's much more diversity um, in terms of, like, values in the black community than people, like, would at first think if they had weren't looking at polling on specific issues, you know? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at like religious evangelicalism, right? There's actually quite a lot of minority representation, right? But that is overridden when the president and your side is calling minorities, you know, the problem. Right. You're not going to be able to tap into that group. Well, th- so the, they they yeah. would say, "Hey, he's not calling minorities the problem at all. He's calling, uh, you know, immigrants who." potentially could be a threat to this country, the problem. That's who he's calling the problem. He loves minorities. That's what they would say, right? Of course. I mean, but do they actually believe that, or is that just the topic? I let's, don't let's know. Talk, I... Let's look at asylum seekers as, as one kind of subset of this migration issue that we can talk about yeah. for specific numbers. So in 2017, the ceiling is the amount of refugees that can possibly be let in with with reason under Obama was 110,000 refugees. That has been lowered to, for 2020, Trump has capped that ceiling at 18,000 refugees. And this, I mean, it's a dramatic drop. The U.S. has for a long time been the number one uh, taker of refugees in the world. Well, plus, what, dropped- ha, what, is that like 980,000 less than Germany has taken, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's insane. And also the, like the asylum process, refugee process is also extremely outdated and old fashioned. And it only allows people to claim refugee status on specific issues that are really pretty outdated. You can't claim refugee status if you're fleeing gang crime, even war, conflict, climate change, poverty, none of these things qualify you as a refugee. So this is a specific subset that we decided after World War II as a world that were people that definitely needed, for humanitarian reasons, a place to leave because they were in physical danger of death or imprisonment. Well, I guess the irony is, like, it bears investigating whether uh, German Jews fleeing the Holocaust now would be admitted under the current asylum law in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason that they were put in place was for that exact reason, with the famous cases of of the St. Louis and other ships that were turned away during World War II or prior to World War II 
with Jewish settlers on board where they were returned to Europe and many of them killed or ended up in, in camps. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's, what has it been 70 years on? And that has been pretty much reversed. Um, and if you look at the actual data of who's being let in, even that is more distorted. It's right. now my majority Christian refugees who are being let in right. at disadvantage of other religions and other nationalities. Right. Um, and is this, I mean, I can only see it as being political. They think maybe they'll be able to court Christian refugees in the future more than Islamic refugees. Um, there's also the national security component, which is the rationalization. But it's it's really just kind of horrible to see this type of transformation, well, especially with refugees, which there really is no reason to say yeah. that there is any justification economically. These are people that are fleeing specific things that we've decided for generations are justifiable reasons for seeking uh, movement to another country. Right. Um, so should we um, talk about, so I want to kind of like make this point, I think more clearly in terms of let's compare two cases. One case um, is from uh, a novel that I reviewed over the summer called The Border by Don Winslow. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, shout out to Journal of Borderland Studies. Dang, dude. Um, Are they giving you a stipend for this? Or Yeah, they're paying me. They better be paying the pot. Yeah, they're... yeah we're getting some residuals here. Yeah. So, um, anyways, I uh, read this book, and there's this, there's this like hundred page account of this young boy's kind of like journey to America. And you could say, well, you know, he's a crime writer. That's fiction. That's not that's not the case of these asylum seekers. But I'm gonna like re, uh, you know, I'm gonna provide a synopsis of that section of the story and that you know character. Um, okay. and then let's compare that to a Polish Jew in World War II, right? So, um, this kid, you know, the character in this book, he's 10 years old. He, he lives in El Salvador. His life is pretty much, um, like going to the, the garbage, like pit and like picking out different, you know, um, mcdonald's uh half-eaten hamburgers that he could still kind of like salvage or um different things that might be valuable that he could sell for you know um a few bucks and in kind of buy rice with it and take it home to his mother and they could have a meal you know for a week um so this is kind of like this kid's day-to-day life right he's not going to school he's like hanging around this garbage heap with a couple of his other friends who do the same thing and so um he basically goes home one night after he scores like a gold necklace and he's really excited about it. And then, you know, his mom's been raped and by like one of the um, local gangs. Uh, and then they also say like, hey, you have to join the gang. Like you kind of have no choice. Like, you know, we could kill your mom or you could join the gang. And so... Um, the gangster guy leaves, uh, his mom's like, you gotta get out of here. And it breaks her heart to say it and it breaks his heart to go. Um, he doesn't necessarily know how to get to America, but he knows like there's this place North that he's got to go to. He's got some family in New Jersey and he's like trying to figure out how to get there. 
Anyways, he goes with some other kids. They get on the top of this uh, train that, you know, goes 100 miles an hour. And, um, and basically just travel the length of Mexico through the searing hot, like, <laughs> season. Um, and all the time, there's people trying to abduct him. There's people, um, you know, one of his uh, close friends who he makes along the way is doing the same journey that saves his life once, gets raped, and then uh, kills herself at, like, right before they get to the uh, southern border. And then um, he kind of finally makes it across. He gets connected with family. And then because one of the, on the way, one of the gangsters who had, like, captured him had given him, like, forcibly given him a tattoo or some sort of, like, flesh marking that was a gang sign. And then now it's, like, anywhere, anytime he gets picked up by a cop, they're looking for these kind of, like, gang signs to see who is already gang affiliated. So, (laughs) you know? Like, that's... So that's, like, the story of this one character in the book, which you can say is far-fetched or you can say is fictionalized, but that really is the case for El Salvador and a lot of people whose reality is the highest, you know, murder rate per capita of anywhere in the world, um, or it's at least top three. And And he's risking this all to get to New Jersey. (laughs) Yeah. That should say enough right there. Yeah, seriously. Um, and so, like, compare that the to, Wyoming like, of the East. to, like, a Polish Jew fleeing, you know, um, the Holocaust conditions. And, like, is it because we've had so many movies um, about it or because it's so horrific to think about how systematized it was in World War II? Or is it because there's such a, like, bond between Christianity and the Jewish traditions um, that we see something like, uh, you know, a refugee fleeing, um, essentially like the concentration camps and that specific scenario as being 100% morally right and just, and actually morally abhorrent to reject that person into the country. Or is it because it was so long ago? Like what makes those two cases so dissimilar and terribly different, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think uh, there are the amount of similarities between asylum seekers today and back in the 50s is what makes it so troubling that we've shifted tone in such a dramatic way. But what I will say is, well, what do you think, let's get into, let's close this up with some discussion of, of solutions. What do you think is the kind of appropriate amount? What should the U.S. policy be? And moving forward throughout the century, how do you think we need to adjust to these growing pressures? Let's say climate change, other things that are going to be driving further migration, or at least attempts at migration, that isn't just putting up more secure borders, more stringent visa controls, more difficult policies, and shifts to skilled immigration. What do you see as being the appropriate strategy that should be adopted by these democratic candidates in, in the coming election? Um, so it's a multivariate problem, right? And it's really complicated and it's really complex. So there's no silver bullet solution for this, but wait, I'll take I a couple. It was just like a I'll wall take a, or we take down the wall. Yeah. This is, I'll take a couple <laughs> stabs at like, 
things I would implement. Um, okay. Okay. Let's so it. I don't, I think, so obviously a wall is nonsense and, um, more, you think a moat, huh? You think a, a moat, moat would be good. Yeah. No, I okay. think, um, more razor wire, more Constantino wire, more, all of that to mm. me is, um, not helpful. Um, more watches of I the think wire. all of the militarization going on at the border isn't helpful. I think, um, better technology and more agents, uh, is good. And so, um, better training for the agents too, and maybe more recruitment of agents, not just from military backgrounds, but perhaps from social work backgrounds as well would be good to kind of reform how people think about that border patrol agent position rather than this kind of like paramilitary, strictly law enforcement, more as kind of like a hybrid between law enforcement and humanitarian relief. So I think that maybe we have about 20,000 agents, Border Patrol agents right now. Maybe we increase that to uh, 30,000 because there is a huge influx in immigration. So... Um, pump money into that. I think more immigration judges. I think we need a lot more immigration judges to hear all these cases. I think all of these cases should be heard in the place where these asylum seekers are seeking asylum, not be held in Mexico arbitrarily until some arbitrary date in the metering system. So I think um, that, yeah, more money towards immigration judges. I think um, actual, like, detainment centers that aren't former prisons uh, would actually be good. So I think detainment centers that actually have like a sanitary, some, you know, a, like a moderate, some, some privacy, certainly. Um, not for profit. Not for profit, certainly. I think all of the um, for-profit detention centers that have violated the contracts um, that they've had with the government and that we have documentation of those violations those contracts should be terminated and not be renewed under Obama administration, Obama's administration, like more on multiple cases, the contracts were renewed despite like blatant violations. Um, and you know, really, uh, undocumented immigrants who were in vulnerable solutions, experiencing sexual harassment or sexual assault, and still those detention centers not being, um, their contracts being revoked. So like, I think better um, detention centers and, and like actually habitable facilities that you're not like embarrassed to show a journalist, you know? Um, so more money towards that. Um, and hearing all these claims in America, I think, uh, um, I think the current system of, of, actually questioning and figuring out what is bogus versus what is a legitimate asylum claim to my understanding is good. I think those people are like thorough and do a really good job. They're just, um, over capacity by like a large stretch of the imagination. So I think hiring more translators, hiring more people to like do that work would be good. Um, I also think increasing, I think maybe you could say the path to citizenship right now is, as hard as it should be and not like lessening the path to citizenship, but 
actually making it easier to like this circular migration. So like rather than making it, if you stay here and just deporting like so many deportations and, and making it impossible to get back, having like widening the amount of visas that people can um, get for work, like temporary work, and then to go back home and then to come back and then to go back home so that we have this like circular migration so that it's not all of these people overseeing their visas because they're terrified to go back home because if they go back home once, they'll never get back and they'll lose their work and their family will lose an income. And so I think like having more seasonal and temporary visas and having, you know, obviously like a good uh, monitoring of those visas is, is good and conducive and fine, you know? But um, so I think it's just like bolstering the infrastructure there as far as where all this money is coming from, which is what every, um, you know, question comes back to. Where are you going to get all this money? Like divert some of the bloat in this military industrial complex. Like we need to really start actually looking at all of the bloat in the military. Just like anecdotal accounts from people I know in the military, just like there's so much wasted money. And I think that the fact that we are we allow ourselves to look at the bloat in the educational system, which it clearly clearly is, but we can't even begin to have the conversation about the military um, bloat and like the funding there. To me, is um, not uh, conducive for a healthy immigration um, system. Okay. Well, I hope the Democratic candidates are listening. Very comprehensive. <laughs> what do you think? What would you do? Yeah, I mean, I I would go less hard on on border control itself with in terms of employees and that sort of thing because I don't think I think that's kind of a stopgap solution. Not that it's not necessary, but I think on top of a lot of the things you said, I think the problem is that the incentives when you're in these countries to stay versus leaving, even if there's a slim chance of making it all the way through to the U.S. unscathed is just so great, the differentials in quality of life, that you really need to address this at the origin. I mean, we should use the disadvantages in national borders that are being gamed by like lawless institutions and and governments to the advantage of, of the states themselves. Investment not in governments and corrupt governments who are perpetuating these circumstances, but investments in underlying institutions and actual use of U.S. foreign investment for the betterment of not just capital growth, but equitable growth is something that is very underutilized. Yeah, sorry. I guess I was saying, like, trying to reform the immigration system as it currently is. But, like, long-term strategy, yeah, addressing the root of the problem, like you are saying, is a much better and more sustainable approach dude don't try to don't try to like reframe it after you come up with a good idea this is nonsense (laughs) (laughs) it's a yeah it's a complex problem (laughs) um i also think we brought this up before i think in terms of asylum seeking i really do think that the current is that the current system of integration for foreign populations because of the secrecy surrounding this and kind of the political unviability of integration of foreign populations at the moment the system is woefully inadequate and the amount of funds that go to these basically run by charities to integrate people into the united states is horrible yeah the 
when I helped out with the IRC in Sacramento, the they basically have funds to keep people coming to the U.S. asylum seekers who are fleeing, you know, warfare and and other terrible crimes have one year. A lot of them don't speak English. You can't teach somebody decent enough English to get a job in one year when they have to worry about getting a home and doing social security registration and getting their kids vaccinated. Yeah. All these things. It's not enough time. It's not enough investment. There should be a bipartisan development of a kind of two-year integration plan where we allow them to invest in language skills for them and their children, integrate them into the U.S. culture, help them understand U.S. history, and help them adapt to American ways of life. There are lots of areas where employment is low, especially in kind of low-wage jobs. And a lot of times, a lot of these migrants come over with lots of skills that are great but are not perfectly attuned to U.S. society. So if you could give them a year of retraining into areas which are deficient, maybe helping out in old folks' homes, those sorts of things, not only would people have more interaction, the contact hypothesis, more interaction with foreign populations that are becoming American, we would be able to help redefine what being an American is, how we commit to the kind of American ideals that have underpinned citizenship in the past and have kind of faded away. Um, And I think that's something that is kind of falls to the wayside. It's about whether we let people in or not. It's not about what we do once they get the visa. Um, And a lot of times, so asylum seekers actually have to pay back the government for the flights and stuff that they get to the United States. So they spend the first like five years of their life trying to pay back the $10,000 that it costs for these migrants with no skills or at least no applicable local skills. And, and we don't talk about any of this, and I think it's just as much a problem. And if you could see that migrants were able to adapt and we were able to help them with the scaffolding that underpins local life, then it would be a lot easier for everyone all around. And I think it would actually save money. That's the irony. It would, absolutely. <laughs> In the end, it would absolutely save money. <laughs> it's like, gosh, dude. Ugh. Yeah. Um, I think that... It's an interesting, so we're, we're not mature enough as a country to, to kind of make this connection, but there's this quote from the article that says in rich countries where productivity is declining as fast as the birth rate, um, Meta, this researcher, they quote, insists the immigration, the immigrant armada that is coming to your shores is actually a rescue fleet. So it's the idea that. As we talked about, you know, in our uh, episode about the end of babies, it's... Dude, nice shout out, dude. If we want to maintain our top spot um, in the world as far as GDP, we have to supplement the labor with immigrants. Like, there's just... Absolutely. No other way to do it. And so, I just don't know... Like, do we want declining... Do we want to be less rich or do we want to be more rich flat out? And just like if we want to be more rich, we welcome in more low wage uh, labor, immigrant labor. Um, I think we need to do an episode on GDP versus happiness and different ways of measuring national prosperity. Right. Yeah. And, may, and maybe a lot of issues that we don't have time for here. Yeah. But. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's a complex thing. I mean, maybe people would say, hey, look at Japan, zero immigration and high GDP and homogenous society that functions well. And 
maybe that maybe that would be an interesting episode too like how does japan like do that and is that okay and you know why you know because they don't they don't accept any asylum seekers or refugees or hardly any immigrants at all they could be our controversial episode if people vote for it (laughs) yeah you know another shout out i've been trying to work in some jokes in this episode but it's such a heady topic i've been failing I've, i've wanted to do a borders versus barnes and noble joke this entire episode. Oh man, that joke would have killed. I'm so bummed you <laughs> weren't able to. It was never a place. It was like right after you talked about like, you know, sexual assault. I could have been like, well, <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a spot. But I promise our next episode will be more exciting, at least more fun. Well, hopefully people have have things to say about this and they can contact us on, on Twitter or elsewhere. Yeah, contact us on Twitter, at RationalishPod. Um, again, rate us on oh, we, uh, yeah. Apple Podcasts. Do it. It'll take... 10 seconds. True. Um, and I forgot to mention the next episode, the controversial one will be in person. The first ever in person. That's episode. true. Wow. We've never had it in person. I know. Yeah. Wow. That'll be wild. We're doing it naked, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like I always, yeah. I always do that. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just going to continue that. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> that's okay. That was for granted. Sorry. I shouldn't have, shouldn't have even questioned it. Yeah. Also, that was supposed to be a surprise. Sorry, sorry, my bad. I, yeah, we're gonna do a visual feature. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's for the page, our, that's the Patreon paid members. I'm pretty sure that's who gave us three stars. It was probably somebody who was like, eh. No, <laughs> the person who gave us three stars is the one that listens to this part of the episode where we're just riffing True. and is like, True. these guys aren't as funny as they think they are. Three stars. <laughs> I mean, I'll take it. Three stars out of five. Yeah. Some of these jokes are. Yeah. All right. Go to so go to iTunes. Go to Apple Podcasts. Rate us three stars out of five. Rate us what we deserve. <laughs> Four if you're feeling you're feeling up for it. Yeah. All right. Adios. And pitch us some controversial episodes. Adios, rational listeners. Bye.